0: Chapter Nineteen of Erasmus and the Age of Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Erasmus and the Age of Reformation by Johann Hausinger. Translated by Friedrich Jan Hauptmann. Chapter Nineteen At War with Humanists and Reformers, fifteen twenty eight. 9. Erasmus turns against the excesses of humanism, its paganism and pedantic classicism. Ciceronianus, 1528. It brings him new enemies. The Reformation carried through at Basel. He emigrates to Freiburg, 1529. His view concerning the results of the Reformation. Nothing is more characteristic of the independence which Erasmus reserved for himself regarding all movements of his time than the fact that he also joined issue in the camp of the humanists. In 1528 there were published by Froben, the chief of the firm of Johannes Froben had just died, two dialogues in one volume from Erasmus's hand, one about the correct pronunciation of Latin and Greek, and one entitled Ciceronianus, or On the Best Diction, i.e. in writing and speaking Latin. Both were proofs that Erasmus had lost nothing of his liveliness and wit. The former treatise was purely philological, and as such has had great influence. The other was satirical as well. It had a long history. Erasmus had always regarded classical studies as the panacea of civilization, provided they were made serviceable to pure Christianity. His sincere ethical feeling made him recoil from the obscenity of a poggio and the immorality of the early Italian humanists. At the same time, his delicate and natural taste told him that a pedantic and servile imitation of antique models could never produce the desired result. Erasmus knew Latin too well to be strictly classical. His Latin was alive and required freedom. In his early works, we find taunts about the over-precise Latin purists. One had declared a newly found fragment of Cicero to be thoroughly barbaric. Quote, Among all sorts of authors, none are so insufferable to me as those apes of Cicero. End quote. In spite of the great expectations he cherished of classical studies for pure Christianity, he saw one danger: quote, that under the cloak of reviving ancient literature, paganism tries to rear its head. As there are those among Christians who acknowledge Christ only in name, but inwardly breathe heathenism. End quote. This he writes in 1517 to Capito. In Italy, scholars devote themselves too exclusively and into pagan guise to bonae litterae, He considered it his special task to assist in bringing it about that those bona quote, with which the Italians have thus far been almost pagan, shall get used to speaking of Christ. Quote. How it must have vexed Erasmus that in Italy, of all countries, he was, at the same time and in one breath, charged with heresy, and questioned in respect to his knowledge and integrity as a scholar italians accused him of plagiarism and trickery he complained of it to Aleander, who he thought had a hand in it in a letter of thirteen fifteen twenty seven to a professor at toledo we find the eboche of the ciceronianus in addition to the haters of classic studies for the sake of orthodox belief writes erasmus lately another and new sort of enemies has broken from their ambush these are troubled that the bonae litterae speak of christ as though nothing can be elegant but what is pagan to their ears jupiter optimus maximus sounds more pleasant than jesus christus redemptor mundi and patres conscripti more agreeable than sancti apostoli they accounted a greater dishonor to be no Ciceronian than no Christian, as if Cicero, if he should now come to life again, would not speak of Christian things, in other words than in his time he spoke of his own religion. What is the sense of this hateful swaggering with the name Ciceronian? I will tell you briefly, in your ear. With that pearl-powder, They cover the paganism that is dearer to them than the glory of Christ. To Erasmus, Cicero's style is by no means the ideal one. He prefers something more solid, succinct, vigorous, less polished, more manly. He who sometimes has to write a book in a day has no time to polish his style, often not even to read it over. Quote, what do I care for an empty dish of words, ten words here and there mumped from Cicero? I want all Cicero's spirit. End quote. These are apes at whom one may laugh, for far more serious than these things are the tumults of the so-called new gospel, to which he next proceeds in this letter. And so, in the midst of all his polemics and bitter vindication, he allowed himself once more the pleasure of giving the reins to his love of scoffing, but as in the moria and colloquia, ennobled by an almost passionate sincerity of Christian disposition and a natural sense of measure. The Ciceronianus is a masterpiece of ready, many-sided knowledge, of convincing eloquence, and of easy handling of a wealth of arguments. With splendid, quiet, and yet lively breadth, flows the long conversation between Buliphorus, representing Erasmus's opinions, Hypologus, the interested inquirer, and Nazaponus, the zealous Ciceronian, who, to preserve a perfect purity of mind, breakfasts of ten currents. Erasmus, in drawing Nazoponus, has, evidently in the main, alluded to one who could no longer reply, Christopher Longolius, who had died in 1522. The core of the Ciceronianus is where Erasmus points out the danger to Christian faith of a too zealous classicism. He exclaims urgently, It is paganism, believe me, Nazaponus, it is paganism that charms our ear and our soul in such things. We are Christians in name alone. End quote why does a classic proverb sound better to us than a quotation from the bible corcorum inter olera "Chiquit among the vegetables better than soul among the prophets as a sample of the absurdity of ciceronianism he gives a translation of a dogmatic sentence in classical language Optimi maximi quae Jovis interprees Acfilius servator rex juxtaquam responsa ex Olimpo devolavit in terras. For Jesus Christ, the Word and the Son of the Eternal Father, came into the world according to the prophets. Most humanists wrote indeed in that style. Was Erasmus aware that he here attacked his own past? After all, was it not exactly the same thing which he had done to the indignation of his opponents when translating logos by sermo instead of verbum? Had he not himself desired that in the church hymns the meter should be corrected, not to mention his own classical odes and paeans to Mary and the saints? And was his warning against the partiality for classic proverbs and turns applicable to anything more than to the adagia. We here see the aged Erasmus on the path of reaction, which might eventually have led him far from humanism. In his combat with humanistic purism, he foreshadows a Christian puritanism. As always, his mockery procured him a new flood of invectives. Bembo and Sadolet, the masters of pure Latin, could afford to smile at it, but the impetuous Julius Caesar Scaliger violently inveighed against him, especially to avenge Longolius's memory. Erasmus's perpetual feeling of being persecuted got fresh food. He again thought that Aleander was at the bottom of it. The Italians set the imperial court against me, he writes in 1530. A year later, all is quiet again he writes jestingly. Upon my word, I am going to change my style after Boudaeus's model and to become a Ciceronian according to the example of Sadelet and Bambo. But even near the close of his life, he was engaged in a new contest with Italians, because he had heard their national pride. Quote, they rage at me on all sides with slanderous libels, as the enemy of italy and cicero there were as he had set himself other difficulties touching him more closely conditions at Basel had for years been developing in a direction which distressed and alarmed him when he established himself there in fifteen twenty one it might still have seemed to him as if the bishop old christopher of uttenheim A great admirer of Erasmus and a man after his heart would succeed in effecting a reformation at Basel as he desired it, abolishing acknowledged abuses but remaining within the fold of the church. In that very year, 1521, however, the emancipation of the municipality from the bishop's power it had been in progress since Basel in 1501 had joined the Swiss Confederacy, was consummated. Henceforth, the council was number one, no longer exclusively made up of aristocratic elements. In vain did the bishop ally himself with his colleagues of Constance and Lausanne to maintain Catholicism. In the town, the new creed got more and more the upper hand. When, however, in 1525, it had come to open tumults against the Catholic service, the council became more cautious and tried to reform more heedfully. Oikolampadius desired this too. Relations between him and Erasmus were precarious. Erasmus himself had at one time directed the religious thought of the impulsive, sensitive, restless young man. When he had, in 1520, suddenly sought refuge in a convent, he had expressly justified that step towards Erasmus, the condemner of binding vows, and now they saw each other again at Basel in 1522, Oikolamparius having left the monastery a convinced adherent and apostle of the new doctrine, Erasmus the great spectator which he wished to be. Erasmus treated his old coadjutor coolly, and as the latter progressed, retreated more and more. Yet he kept steering a middle course, and in 1525 gave some moderate advice to the council, which meanwhile had turned more Catholic again. The old bishop, who for some years had no longer resided in his town, in 1527 requested the chapter to relieve him of his office, and died shortly afterwards. Then events moved very quickly. After Bern had, meanwhile, reformed itself in 1528, Oikolampadius demanded a decision also for Basel. Since the close of 1528, the town had been on the verge of civil war. A popular rising put an end to the resistance of the council, and cleared it of Catholic members. And in February 1529, the old service was prohibited. The images were removed from the churches. The convents abolished and the university suspended oikolampadius became the first minister in the munster and leader of the basel church for which he soon drew up a reformatory ordinance the new bishop remained at parantrui and the chapter removed to freiburg the moment of departure had now come for erasmus his position at basel in 1529 somewhat resembled but in a reversed sense the one at louvain in 1521 then the catholics wanted to avail themselves of his services against luther now the evangelicals would fain have kept him at Basel, for his name was still a banner his presence would strengthen the position of reformed Basel. on the one hand because as people reasoned If he were not of the same mind as the reformers, he would have left the town long ago. On the other hand, because his figure seemed to guarantee moderation and might attract many hesitating minds. It was therefore again to safeguard his independence that Rasmus changed his residence. It was a great wrench this time. Old age and invalidism had made the restless man a stay-at-home as he foresaw trouble from the side of the municipality he asked archduke ferdinand who for his brother charles v governed the german empire and just then presided over the diet of Speyer, to send him a safe conduct for the whole empire and an invitation moreover to come to court which he did not dream of accepting as a place of refuge he had selected the not-far-distant town of Freiburg in Preisgau, which was directly under the strict government of the Austrian house, and where he, therefore, need not be afraid of such a turn of affairs as that at Basel. It was, moreover, a juncture at which the imperial authority and the Catholic cause in Germany seemed again to be gaining ground rapidly. Erasmus would not or could not keep his departure secret. He sent the most precious of his possessions in advance, and when this had drawn attention to his plan, he purposely invited Oikolampadius to a farewell talk. The reformer declared his sincere friendship for Erasmus, which the latter did not decline, provided he granted him to differ on certain points of dogma. Oikolampadius tried to keep him from leaving the town, and when it proved too late for that. To persuade him to return later. They took leave with a handshake. Erasmus had desired to join his boat at a distant landing stage, but the council would not allow this. He had to start from the usual place near the Rhine bridge. A numerous crowd witnessed his embarkation, 13 April 1529. Some friends were there to see him off. No unfavorable demonstration occurred his reception at freiburg convinced him that in spite of all he was still the celebrated and admired prince of letters the council placed at his disposal the large though unfinished house built for the emperor maximilian himself a professor of theology offered him his garden anthony fugger had tried to draw him to augsburg by means of a yearly allowance but the rest he considered freiburg by no means a permanent place of abode I have resolved to remain here this winter, and then to fly with the swallows to the place whither God shall call me. But he soon recognized the great advantage which Freiburg offered. The climate to which he was so sensitive turned out better than he expected, and the position of the town was extremely favorable for emigrating to France should circumstances require this or for dropping down the rhine back to the netherlands whither many always called him in fifteen thirty one he bought a house at Freiburg. the old erasmus at freiburg even more tormented by his painful malady much more disillusioned than when he left louvain in fifteen twenty one of more confirmed views as to the great ecclesiastical strife will only be fully revealed to us when his correspondence with Boniface Ammerbach, the friend whom he left behind at Basel, a correspondence not found complete in the older collections, has been edited by Dr. Allen's care. From no period of Erasmus's life, it seems, may so much be gleaned in point of knowledge of his daily habits and thoughts as from these very years work went on without a break in that great scholar's workshop where he directs his family who hunt manuscripts for him and then copy and examine them and whence he sends forth his letters all over europe in the series of editions of the fathers followed basil and the new editions of chrysostom and cyprian his editions of classic authors were augmented by the works of aristotle he revised and republished the colloquies three more times, the adages and the New Testament once more. Occasional writings of a moral or politico-theological nature kept flowing from his pen. From the cause of the Reformation he was now quite estranged. pseudo Evangelici, he cantumeliously calls the Reformed. I might have been a corypheus in Luther's church, he writes in 1528, but I preferred to incur the hatred of all Germany to being separate from the community of the church. End quote. The authorities should have paid a little less attention at first to Luther's proceedings. Then the fire would never have spread so violently he had always urged theologians to let minor concerns which only contain an appearance of piety rest and to turn to the sources of scripture now it was too late towns and countries united ever more closely for or against the reformation if what i pray may never happen he writes to sadoulette in fifteen thirty you should see horrible commotions of the world arise not so fatal for Germany as for the church, then, remember, Erasmus prophesied it. Quote. To Beatus Renanus, he frequently said that, had he known that an age like theirs was coming, he would never have written many things or would not have written them as he had. Just look, he exclaims, at the evangelical people. Have they become any better? Do they yield less to luxury, lust, and greed? Show me a man whom that gospel has changed from a toper to a temperate man, from a brute to a gentle creature, from a miser to a liberal person, from a shameless to a chaste being. I will show you many who have become even worse than they were. Quote. Now they have thrown the images out of the churches and abolished mass, he is thinking of Basel especially. Has anything better come instead? Quote, I have never entered their churches, but I have seen them return from hearing the sermon, as if inspired by an evil spirit, the faces of all showing a curious wrath and ferocity, and there was no one except one old man who saluted me properly when I passed in the company of some distinguished persons. End quote. He hated that spirit of absolute assuredness so inseparably bound up with the reformers. Quote, Zwingli and Butzer may be inspired by the spirit. Erasmus from himself is nothing but a man and cannot comprehend what is of the spirit. End quote. There was a group among the reformed to whom Erasmus in his heart of hearts was more nearly akin than to the Lutherans or Zwinglians, with their rigid dogmatism, the Anabaptists. He rejected the doctrine from which they derived their name and abhorred the anarchic element in them. He remained far too much the man of spiritual decorum to identify himself with these irregular believers. But he was not blind to the sincerity of their moral aspirations, and sympathized with their dislike of brute force and the patience with which they bore persecution. They are praised more than all others for the innocence of their life, he writes in 1529. Just in the last part of his life came the episode of the violent revolutionary proceedings of the fanatic Anabaptists. It goes without saying that Erasmus speaks of it only with horror. One of the best historians of the Reformation, Walter Köhle, calls Erasmus one of the spiritual fathers of Anabaptism and it is certain that in its later peaceful development it has important traits in common with Erasmus. A tendency to acknowledge free will, a certain rationalistic trend, a dislike of an exclusive conception of a church. It seems possible to prove that the South German Anabaptist Hans Denk derived opinions directly from Erasmus. For a considerable part, however, This community of ideas must no doubt have been based on peculiarities of religious consciousness in the Netherlands whence Erasmus sprang, and where Anabaptism found such a receptive soil. Erasmus was certainly never aware of these connections. Some remarkable evidence regarding Erasmus' altered attitude towards the old and the new church is shown by what follows. The reproach he had formerly so often flung at the advocates of conservatism that they hated the bona illiterai so dear to him and wanted to stifle them, he now uses against the evangelical party. Wherever Lutherism is dominant, the study of literature is extinguished. Why else, he continues using a remarkable sophism, are Luther and Melanchthon compelled to call back the people so urgently to the love of letters. Just compare the University of Wittenberg to that of Louvain or Paris. Printers say that before this gospel came, they used to dispose of 3,000 volumes more quickly than now of 600. A sure proof that studies flourish. End, quote. End of chapter 19